In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson this week on the show we're joined by zach morris of third rail projects and longtime third rail collaborator tara O'Con to talk about the new show return the moon which finds members of the company exploring the possibilities of zoom as a medium we check in with our friend Fiona of Studio Sci-Fi about the goings-on in the VR chat prefabs community right at the height of Venice VR Expanded and while VRCon is underway. And we have a fascinating conversation with neuroscientist Paul J. Zach about the science of immersion, how his team of researchers measure the depth of immersion, and the platform they've made to do that with a smartwatch. All that, plus the return of Immersive 101, and of course, the pick of the week. But first, headlines. Hello, this is Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Proscenium, and here's what's in the Immersive Headlines for September 10th. Atlas V, the French production company who've worked on VR projects like Battlescar and Gloomy Eyes, has launched a brand new publishing and distribution arm, Astria. Astria's goal will be to help cutting-edge VR pieces make that transition from the festival circuit onto consumer headsets, all via publishing, international licensing, location-based entertainment installations, immersive installations, localization, and more. And also in VR news. The curators of Venice VR Expanded, that is Liz Rosenthal and Michelle Rilak, have been warning about the chilling effects of content requirements on major VR distribution platforms which prohibit items such as sex and nudity. For example, some of the projects chosen for Venice VR Expanded actually can't be shown remotely. One such project is the sexually explicit In the Mist, which centers around gay experience in a male sauna. This piece can only be seen if you're physically at Venice or visit one of the festival's satellite venues. For more of NoPro's coverage on Venice VR Expanded, check out the front page of NoProsenium.com. And lastly, a couple pieces of news from the theater corner of our world. The reopening for Sleep No More NYC has been pushed back to February 14th, 2022, although the previously planned Halloween parties at the McKittrick Hotel will still take place as planned this October. Plus, the December 2021 pre-Broadway iteration of K-pop the Musical has been canceled. The production cites, quote, pandemic-related logistical challenges with bringing the production to D.C. at this time, end quote. However, according to the team, the musical is, quote, still on a firm trajectory to open on Broadway in the coming year, end quote. Meanwhile, in London, tickets for Punch Drunk's next large-scale immersive show, The Burnt City, have gone on sale. The venue's capacity is set at 600 audience members who will have free reign to wander a 100,000-square-foot space in Woolwich. The Burnt City will be based upon a parallel futuristic universe, with the Trojan War being remixed with 1920s Berlin and the classic film Metropolis. The company's last large-scale promenade mask-style show in London was 2013's The Drone Man. And previews for The Burnt City will start in March, with the official opening set for April. For our staff reaction to this news, just flip back one episode in your podcast feed for this week's Review Crew. And these have been your immersive headlines. Catherine will be back later on in the show. 
joining us now, we have two of the creative team behind Return the Moon, a new piece of interactive theater that is presented by Third Rail Projects. Joining us today are... Uh, I am Zach Morris. I am one of the founders and co-artistic directors of Third Rail Projects, one of the co-creators of Return the Moon, and my credit on the work is as a director. And... I am Tara O'Conn. I am a multidisciplinary performing artist, experiential consultant, and professional transformation coach, and a longtime collaborator with Third Rail Projects. And I am a performer on the work slash co-creator. All right. And we'll, we'll get into who all the, the collaborators on this one is, I think, over the course of the, the interview. But before we get too deep into it, what from the outside looking in is Return the Moon? That's a, that's a great question. Um, uh, Return the Moon is a work that was created specifically and intentionally for the Zoom platform. We, as a group of co-creators, came together to really question and examine and challenge ourselves and challenge the platform to sort of unearth what what are the possibilities and what are the unique possibilities that the Zoom platform affords, um, especially kind of in this in this cultural moment. We we wondered what could we do on this platform, and how how might we push our own expectations of that? So the work itself um, had a very long and and fruitful. Uh, creative and gestation process. And Tara, perhaps I'll let you talk a little bit about what what it was that we eventually sort of created. Sure. Yeah. We went into the process, I remember having very lengthy brainstorming, wonderful conversations around not only what it means to be storytelling on this platform and how we can fold the reality of that platform into the world that we were building, but also, you know, what is, what is the story we want to be telling right now in these times and what's important to us about that and how we might weave our own personal impacts into that as a, as a creative team and as individuals, but also I think really hold a spaciousness for our audience to come into this experience wherever they are in their lives and in this moment and building a world in which we could both come together in, in, in this ritual, in this story, and as a means of being able to really go into another realm of reality and another um, storytelling world, but also really carry with us um, 
how we are really feeling in the moment and how we are really arriving in the moment and holding space for that to be whatever it is in the moment in real time. So both at once holding a fiction, but also holding, um, holding, holding reality. Yeah. And I, I think that that kind of really manifested in the, the final form that the work took um, upon, upon coming to Return the Moon. The audience is invited to a Zoom meeting, much like the Zoom meetings that many of us have participated in uh, over these many, many months. Um, as an audience member, you find yourself in a breakout room with a performer uh, who is having a very candid, in-the-moment conversation, asking everyone how they're arriving, where they are, uh, letting them know that we will be collectively crafting a work that is shared. Um, and sort of the framing around it is that this evening we're going to be creating a story that is also a toast. And through the conversations with the audience, uh, the performers ask a couple questions, offer a couple prompts for inquiry or input, um, which the audience is invited to respond to, but certainly not obligated to. And then those responses are later folded into uh, a more theatrical iteration where the full audience finds themselves in a, a main room in Zoom hearing a a retelling of a very old story, which has been pulled from multiple sources, um, and then sort of cinematic choreographic imagining of some of the themes that came out of the story, as well as perhaps some of the audience's responses. Uh, and then the piece culminates in a toast that is raised by the audience, by the performers uh, to the audience, utilizing some of those elements. So let's dial in on uh, let's let's dial in on that for a second. Uh, the the idea of the toast, the in a ritual. Uh, what led to choosing that as a framing device for this work? I think it it emerged really. We we as a collective of artists and creators, and I think maybe it's it's useful just to highlight that this work was created by um, an extraordinary team. And so uh, Tara, myself, Alberto Dennis, Kristen Doyer, uh, Joshua Gonzalez, Sean Haggerty, Justin Lynch, Marissa Nielsen-Pincus, and Edward Rice, all of us collectively entered into this process um, with actually quite a bit of pre-framing about how, how did we want to work together what are the what are the questions that we wanted to ask? What was the rehearsal and process space we wanted to create? And then doing some deep dives into, as Tara said, you know, what is what is the story that we want to tell right now? What is the what is the thing that we feel like we need? And from that, we we began investigating fairy tales. We began investigating. Uh, some of the modalities of Zoom, the different ways that we could interact with our audience. And what sort of bloomed was this idea of being able to find ways that the audience could, in a really gentle, non-pressured way, um, offer, offer where they were 
right now um, and that we could then create a work that that honored that 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 kind of raised a glass to wherever we all were um, and so this idea of a toast um, really really began resonating and and some of that was a little bit informed by a, a prior rehearsal process that we had had um, this was early early in 2020 um, where I had been investigating with uh, with a group of artists the ways in which audience could more fully like literally create a work um, and that piece that piece focused a lot around food and um, Edward uh, sort of created an initial idea around uh, a he, he called it the a contemporary ritual for collective loneliness, which was just kind of an opportunity to have some reflection uh, that then uh, that then those those responses that were that were gifted by the audience were were raised as a toast to this to that to the other. So, sort of taking that idea along with some of these other explorations, I think we became really interested in what does it mean to create. A, to create a, a sort of a ritual for gathering, a ritual for coming together. Um, Tara, do you have other thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that there is also, I know for me personally, uh, I was very interested in the element of ritual and how that might be a way that we together with the audience can can participate in creating both creating something new like something emerges out of that and also that framework of ritual really holds space to to witness and to be witnessed and for everybody individually to really again, kind of come as they are and offer offer whatever it is they want to offer or feel moved to offer. And again, what Zach had said in this very gentle way, but it gives, it, it lands us in a sense of purpose. It, it lands us in a sense of like, why are we here? We are here gathered together in order to enact this ritual that can only happen because because we are gathered and and same with that toast we are only we are toasting to this moment in a way that also invites the audience to bring in whatever they want to bring in from their own lives but it's very much about here now together and i think the frameworks of rituals and toasts and the idea that a toast is actually a ritual we don't often think about that. I remember having a, a light bulb moment with that at some point during the process, like, wow, like really, what does that mean to actually offer a toast and, 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 and make it, make it actually feel a little bit more intentional um, and really honor that as a ritual that we actually do all the time. So yeah. there, there is a, there's a, uh, I think a unique opportunity there to also 
fold in an element to this work wherein the audience can come away from the performance, uh, the experience, maybe having a little bit of sense of, oh, maybe the next time <laughs> I do a toast, I, I'm actually thinking about it as, oh, this is a really, this is an opportunity to really honor and acknowledge, right? Which is inherently what it is, but sometimes we kind of go through that motion and, and don't even think about that. So there's a lot of cultural, yeah. like, um, you know, rituals that we, we don't even think of as rituals and we just sort of take exactly. for granted and we don't know, we don't know why we do them. They're, they're left unexamined, but if you pick them up and start examining them, you, you can discover that there's, they can be quite potent if you, if you bring something to them. Right. Right. There is a bit of wisdom that I've heard and I'm sorry that I, I'm like, I don't know where I read this or heard this. And we're not an being academic spoken blog, to, so. but, but, but that, but that rituals, every ritual was created to fill a need of mm. a, of, of a moment of a certain moment in time for a group of people. And yes, as you just said, like we, we sort of, the, the, the act of the ritual in some way stays, I think well, Tom Pearson also speaks about this a lot, like sort of like what the bones of a ritual are and many times like we are kind of left with sort of the shell of that and we don't know why we're doing them, but we do them. So as we are kind of moving along in time together as humanity, that opportunity to also create new rituals that actually answer a need about th this time, you know, for your life or for our collective, that its rituals are based in answering that call to fill a need or to acknowledge a certain moment. That's got my brain going like 15 different directions, but what I'm going to do <laughs> is like, like and you, you would not believe some of the directions it's going in. Uh, nothing dark, nothing dark, <laughs> nothing dark or weird. Just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nerding in, in certain directions. Um, Love it. The company always has, um, maybe always is maybe a bit of an oversimplification, but uh, part of your process from the outside always looks like a, a long preview process, which uh, it, I find to be wise. <laughs> like, so there's no shade here at all. More like, look and see. Um, <laughs> what what has evolved? What what is what is that affording you this time out? Because Zoom mm. is a new medium for you all, and you know, no no immersive or interactive show like is is the show until the audience arrives. But what does that even mean in in this kind of space? Yeah, well, uh, it, it was one of the earliest questions that we had, like sort of from a. Uh, a geeky experience design perspective, we we really spent a long time thinking about, you know, what what is an experience on Zoom, specifically formatted for Zoom? Like, what does that mean? Um, there are so many factors that are so fundamentally different from the the work that I have done in the past and many of these collaborators have done in the past where uh, we have a tremendous amount of control in, in some ways, but there's also, we, we can't control world bleed. They are, they are in their own spaces. Their roommates are walking through. They like, 
the 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 magic circle that is drawn around this work is fundamentally different than a lot of the other works that have happened live. And so a lot of our rehearsal process um, and, and also preview process was about learning how to embrace that, how to, how to approach Zoom and, and wherever the audiences were coming in from um, in the same way that we sort of do a site exploration, How, what is the architecture here? What what are the affordances? What are the things that we need to create? What are the things that we simply can't ignore and and thus want to really uphold um, and highlight? How how do we how do we acknowledge the the both the the realness and the artifice of this form? Um, and so we, we spent, you know, I think I, I have a tendency to, in my processes, really want to kind of booby trap myself and invite audience in way earlier than, uh, than feels comfortable because there's so much learning that happens. Um, anything from how folks were able to access the performance, what are the considerations around that? Um, what are the things that feel resonant when you are only engaging with this on a small glowing screen? What are the things that really stick out? And and a lot of a lot of the process was really about trying things out, getting intake from our audience, um, drafting, redrafting, throwing things out. Um, and, and I've actually felt really, really thankful for the ease and the grace and the spaciousness of time that we've been able to have with this process to, to really explore this medium and, and the content that we've created for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in, in many ways, as Zach is describing, it's, it, there is actually overlap in 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 the sense that, you know, for me, previews have been an extension of that test audience learning moment um, that we often have with our with our live shows, um, and it is it is a place to an opportunity to really be inside of inside of that experience as a performer and really, really begin to understand it. And there is, there's, there's just, you know, you can, you can think about all the things and think you've, think you've got it all and think you understand it, but until you're actually doing it with the audience, like that's when, that's when really all of the connections start to make sense. And you're like, oh, actually, this is the way I should do it. Or, oh, actually, this is what the, this may be making this little tweak to the script. So without that long process and that spaciousness to really understand what we've created, um, I think we would have missed a lot of opportunities to really um, hone in on the essence of what it was we were trying to create and to really refine it to the experience that it has ended up to be. 
and Tara, I, I, I wonder if you feel like this is resonant with some of the other works that, that we've collaborated on, like with this work, as with many of the other works, uh, I feel like that extended preview process and the rehearsal time where we're showing things to audience, it's an opportunity for us as creators to allow the piece to kind of reveal itself to mm-hmm. us. Like yeah. we, we're, we're listening and learning what the piece itself wants to be. Um, mm-hmm. which is often radically different than, you know, some of the assumptions that we might've had coming into it. Absolutely. 100%. It's a chance to listen to what the piece is actually. Yes. Yes. And I think the way in which we were able to structure our time and schedule and like huge props to Kristen and Edward and Marissa for that and and you, Zach, uh, in the way that, you know, there is, I think, a particular amount of care around giving ourselves time and space and to really give us an opportunity to not have that sense of urgency around, oh, time crunch, time crunch, time crunch. It's like, well, we're really trying to, we're really trying to build a new culture around how we how we work um, that is kinder for everybody involved. And so, yes, having dress rehearsals with invited audience, having a long preview process where we really get to tweak, like that is all giving us a sense where we can come together as a group and we check in at the top of rehearsal and we're like, okay, like, wow, we have time. How amazing is that to have time? You know, so I think just major props to us for and to you all for building a structure that gave us the time to have a long process with the audience in order for the piece to have a chance to emerge. All right. Well, for people who want to see the piece that emerged, how do they do that? Uh, Folks can find tickets on thirdrailprojects.com. Can look in our work under Return the Moon. Uh, tickets are available there. Um, yes. <laughs> yes, they are. Sometimes it's more complicated than that. So, uh, Zach and Tara, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about uh, the latest project and, uh, and your, your first exploration of uh, the, the Zoom universe. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Noah. Still to come on the show, the pick of the week, our conversation with neuroscientist Paul J. Zach, and we check in with what's going on in VR chat. Right now, at this very moment, I want to take a moment to direct your attention to experiencethenextstage.com. That's where you'll find info about the upcoming Next Stage Summit in Pasadena, California this January. Streaming passes are available now for those who are badge holders of the postponed 2020 summit, and we'll be going on sale on the 21st to the general public. These passes can be upgraded to a full three-day on-site pass once those become available and can be used to hold your place in line for those badges. Why so complicated, you ask? (laughs) COVID, my friend. 
COVID. We're aiming to be flexible here and give everyone the options they need and also give us the info we need to make the best event we can with the resources and time available to us. Get all the details at experiencethenextstage.com. And we're back this week with your favorite segment and mine. That's right. Immersive 101. Once again, executive editor Catherine Yu is here to tell us about one of the fundamental ideas in the Immersiverse. Hello, Catherine. What do you have for us this week? Hi, Noah. So I think we should talk about this acronym LBE, which stands for Location-Based Entertainment. LBE, location-based entertainment. All right, that's a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> what is LBE and do we know why they call it LBE? So this is an industry term for mm. entertainment that involves going to a specific venue or type of establishment. So really they're trying to differentiate this from things you can do at home. So one of the more popular formats of this is a VR center. You might be familiar with something like 2-Bit Circus or Dreamscape. These are LBE centers where you're doing VR outside of your home, often with a small group of people. Similarly, escape games and escape rooms are also examples of immersive location-based entertainment centers where you need to go to a specific place or kind of establishment in order to be able to participate. However, LBEs are actually, they've been around for a long time, right? So think about video game arcades or theme parks or bowling alleys. Like these are all technically also LBE, but as you're digging into the different types of immersive art and entertainment, you'll start to see these kinds of terms thrown around like, oh yeah, uh, this company, they are doing LBE VR. So it's basically like a bucket, right? Like LBE Anything that is, it, this is what it says on the tin. Like, it's not that complicated. If it's entertainment and it's based in a location, congratulations, you have location based entertainment. Indeed. It's yeah. not in your house. You have to go somewhere else. And what makes it really interesting and special is oftentimes you're going there on a date or with a group of friends or maybe with some coworkers. I also think it's one of those things where people have a term or an acronym and it, it sounds all fancy and everyone goes like, Oh, I, but I'm confused now. Cause there's this term of art, but it, it really is what it says on the tin. Like it's, it's not that complicated of an idea. LBE location-based entertainment. Well, you know, everything always sounds fancier when you make it into an acronym. Well, A-G-F-D-Y-Y. I don't know what that stands for, but it sounds cool. So, <laughs> um, can this also? So, like, I'm thinking in terms of like the way everyone talks about content on the internet. Is this sort of the same thing? Like, it's kind of business speak, and so if you see people using it, you kind of know the perspective that that folks are coming from. Oh yes, definitely. If someone is talking about this from more of a corporate or enterprise perspective, uh, that's the kind of person who would be using this term. Okay. So it's it's a great way to sort of know what conversation you're in, not just what it means. For sure. 
All right. Well, hopefully that's a healthy lesson for everyone. Um, boy, that sounded didactic. Whatever. <laughs> you get me sometimes. Um, <laughs> Catherine, uh, we'll, uh, we'll have you back for the next Immersive 101. I'm sure we're going to learn something else fascinating soon. All right. Thank you so much. Now we reach that part of the show where we check in with our friends from around the Immersiverse. Joining us this week, one of my oldest friends uh, in existence, uh, who just so happens to be a mover and shaker in the VR chat prefabs community. That would be Fiona of Studio Sci-Fi. Hello, Fiona. Hi, nice to be here. All right. Uh, we're using our nom de plumes today. Um, Fiona, you, um, for, for those who don't know, you're part of the award-winning team behind The Devouring, which made a big splash last year at Raindance and mm-hmm. a few other uh, places on the festival circuit. And uh, you used to be in-house at Facebook, and now you are a full-time VR creator on your own. We're going to get into that. I think a little bit in a broad sense, but right now this week you've been uh, you've been helping out around Venice VR expanded. Uh, talk to us about that. Sure. So um, I'm going to focus on what they're doing in VR Chat, which is um, a great social platform that you can pretty much upload any uh, of your own content to. Um, since my role in VR chat is as a world creator and as a community leader of world creators, they asked me to put together a recommendation of VR chat worlds to visit. So in the main hub world of the Venice VR expanded, which you can go visit right now in VR chat, um, they have uh, little galleries of collections of experiences that you can visit of pre-existing things. These are not, uh, entered into VR, the Venice VR awards, they're more like best of. So um, I put together my recommendations and they did their own curated list. And just today uh, we had some world hops where people could join us and we went to some of our favorite worlds to kind of experience them. And that was a lot of fun. So that's the kind of things that you can see um, at the festival right now that is specifically VR chat content. And this is something you mentioned, they, they asked you to help uh, put this together. Uh, VR chat is something that Venice, which is one of the most important film festivals in the world, uh, has has an eye on. So how does how does the community feel that that you know this really big event has got their eye on them? You know, it's really funny because the VR chat world building community is um, kind of like three D artists and gamers, and they're not as much plugged into the film festival circuit. So they know that this is big. And the, the people who are featured definitely feel like this is an honor. But what I really like to see is the intersection of these, this like computer gaming world and this like art and film world. That's where I think this is the most exciting part is like these two mediums colliding. Now, a couple of weeks back, there was a big event in the VR chat world, uh, a big marketplace that happens a couple of times a year. I wonder if you could uh, fill us in on, on what this is. I think it's called VCATS. Did I get that right? Yeah, so it is the virtual market. It is run by a company out of Japan called Hiki. Um, it is called VKET for short. And what this is, is they put together uh, a number of hub worlds. And it's it's much like um, any other kind of like market or mall where you 
um, as a creator would get a booth space in which you put in your own content, your own contact information where people can acquire your content. And uh, this is a huge event, like a dozen to 36 worlds, I think, depending on the event. Um, each one packed full of booths that are full of avatars, art, uh, 3D models, all sorts of things that you might be interested in as a VR user. So people are, so you say it's a market. So this isn't just an exposition. People are buying and trading and selling. What are they, what are they, what are they selling? And are they using, are they like using Bitcoin all over the place? Is NFTs? What's, <laughs> what's, what's the trade here? Absolutely not. No, no. So, so VR chat does not allow on platform monetization of any sort right now. So um, that is all going to be done offline. So uh, they will have at these marketplaces, they have special permission to allow you to open up a website with a click. So if you go into a booth, there'll be a little open web page, it will take you to that creator's selling page. And that could be on the virtual market site itself. The vast majority of content is sold on booth.pm which is a Japanese uh, digital marketplace. And from there, you pay actual dollars to download uh, the, the files for the avatars or assets that you're getting. And in some cases, uh, real goods. So a couple of V-cuts ago, you could purchase t-shirts this way. And I actually did that and had them shipped to me from Japan. So um, really anything that you would purchase off a website, it's just giving you a link to do so. But the primary trade is in the digital assets yes. for, for people to help build out their worlds or to costume themselves, right? Yeah, exactly. I would say probably over 90% of the assets being sold are avatars or uh, clothes or accessories for your avatars. So this you mentioned this has been going on for a while now. Um, is this starting to mature? I mean, let's, let's, let's go to the chase a little bit, right? Like everyone loves to talk metaverse, 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 right? You know, if you say it, Three times you get one version of it, and five times mm-hmm. you get another. But um, I look at what's happening in VCats. I look at this this community of creators, and there's there's something here. Um, are are the folks in VR chat starting to create kind of like careers for themselves in this? Absolutely. This is, I think, something I've been seeing happen um, exponentially over the past year or so. Um, even though VRChat does not currently have any monetization, they have plans for it that they have hinted about, but people are finding their own way. So um, the two main roads that I've been seeing is people who are selling direct assets on places like Gumroad or Booth. Um, and there's a lot of avatar creators that this is their their main living. Um, we have a handful of world creators that are doing this now as well. Some people are getting jobs in the VR industry from the skills they acquired as hobbyists. Some people are turning uh, their content in VR chat directly into monetization through support platforms such as Patreon. So there's a big creator called Jar who makes quest compatible game worlds in VR chat. And just this past month, Jar announced that they are going full time. They have enough money on Patreon now to fully support themselves. Um, Myself and Cyan Laser, we also started as hobbyists and we quit our very lucrative uh, big tech jobs and we're now an indie studio creating content based on our VR chat content as well. So this is happening more and more. And as uh, the digital marketplace t- continues to grow and evolve and there's going to be more platforms for these assets, I think we're going to see a lot more 
uh, people turning to this as their main career. How does the the advent of you know Facebook slowly rolling Horizon out, uh, you know the boom around places like Rec Room, and then of always the the rumored arrival of of Apple in this space? I believe today they just they they hit an AR Easter egg inside their event announcement for the fourteenth. How is how is this kind of you know impacting people's decision making uh, or or are people people really focused on what they're doing in the here and now and, and and still got this like hobbyist verve to it? I think there is so many unknowns right now that you can't put all your eggs in one basket. So now this isn't new, right? So we've seen this in Second Life and recently in Rec Room people. Uh, making money doing doing things like this, but it hasn't been um, more than I think, you know, a handful of people in niches, that kind of stuff. And you and you don't want to hang your entire career on the success of maybe one platform. However, VR and AR aren't going away. We're seeing more and more of it. And when big companies like Facebook and Apple and, you know, everybody gets involved, um, the skills that you learn in creating this content are going to transfer to whatever comes next. So in the meantime, we've got all of these like, you know, individual uh, websites and and supports and stuff going on. Um, People are waiting for that next big platform. Definitely. There's a lot of people who's like, this is great, but I'm going to keep my day job until I can see uh, how this would work in the long term. So we're still a little bit wait and see. All right. Fiona, if people want to check out the work you're doing at Studio Sci-Fi or just kind of follow along and, and explore that VR chat community, uh, how can they uh, track you down? The easiest way to find me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Jen Davis Wilson. Uh, you can also follow the Prefabs community at VRC Prefabs on Twitter as well. All right. Fiona, thanks for uh, stopping by the show today. Oh, Thanks for having me. For those who are interested, VRCon is running right now. You can check that out at vrcon.online and explore the VR chat community. And for those of you with Venice VR Expanded Passes, I just might see you on the island this weekend and into next. There's a lot more to come, and you can catch even more at noproscenium.com. And by becoming a Patreon backer at patreon.com slash noproscenium, where we get into the bonus material. We need your support to keep this work going. And if you are already a backer, we need your help spreading the word. A review on iTunes and a share on social media goes a long way towards bringing new people into this wonderful world we're creating together. It only takes a second. Hi, this is Kevin Gossett, the LA Reviews Editor for No Presidium. You reach the part of the show where we introduce the pick of the week. Think of this as a companion piece to both the Review Crew podcast, which you can find just one spot back in this very podcast feed, and the weekly review rundown, which you can find on our website. This week, the pick of the week is brought to us by... Hello, everyone. I'm Catherine Yu, executive editor of No Presidium. And Catherine, what's the pick of the week this week? So the pick of the week this week is an experience that's currently being showcased as part of Venice VR Expanded. It's called Le Bal de Paris, and I apologize for my French being so bad.
And what makes this the pick of the week? So this is a adaptation, a standalone virtual reality piece that is actually originally meant to be something that you do in person. So imagine something like The Void or Chained. Uh, the original concept is to have 10 participants in VR in the same space as multiple dancers also in VR in the same space. But in order to make sure that people can experience this from wherever they are in the world, they have kind of reconceptualized it and made it its own standalone piece. It's about 40 minutes long and it has elements of immersive theater. It has singing, it has dancing. There's some fantastic sets. Uh, I felt like I was inside a movie. And Catherine, is this just a festival piece? Is this its final form? Um, is this going to evolve as it, as it goes on? So I really hope that the standalone virtual reality version lives on and reaches people all across the world. That said, I believe their plan was always to do this as a live show with people all in the same space. The world being what it is, their live shows were postponed, but they're hoping to bring them back once conditions improve. And I think that their first stop is going to be Paris. So one of the things that makes this piece really interesting is you are moving from set to set as if you were inside a dark ride on rails, immersive theatrical piece. Uh, the performers are kind of motioning at you, beckoning you to follow them, asking you to get on a boat or a trolley or an elevator. And similar to sandbox shows like Sleep No More, you can kind of curate what you focus on, where your attention goes by walking around in VR as the performance is happening all around you. So there are parts where you feel like you're inside Moulin Rouge. There's parts where you feel like you're inside Alice in Wonderland. And it's a really interesting usage of VR to do this kind of processional theatrical performance that I haven't necessarily seen anywhere else. Thanks for that, Catherine. If you want to learn more about this show and anything else that the crew has been seeing at Venice VR, you can check it out on nopersenium.com. Joining us now on the podcast is Paul J. Zach, who, among other things, is the professor of economic sciences, psychology, and management, and the director of the Center for Neuroeconomics Studies at Claremont Graduate University. He's also the founder of Immersion Neuroscience, which is the first neuroscience as a service platform. Uh, we will get into exactly what that is and what that means in a second. Paul, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Noah, for inviting me. So I, I had the pleasure of getting to hear you talk uh, to a small group as part of uh, James Wallman's uh, WXO group. I want to give a shout out to James there for uh, connecting us. And what you're doing with this this platform you have, which I'll have you give the full pitch on in a second, is is really fascinating, seems almost like magic, but is not magic. And I think that everyone will understand that it's not magic. I mean, I mean, what is magic? Uh, uh, it is a, it's a science we don't sufficiently understand if, if uh, anyway, science fiction authors, whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> whatever you could like, tell us a bit about your background because there's, there's notes of DARPA in there. You've given a lot of TED Talks. You're the author of The Moral Molecule, The Source of Love and Prosperity. Uh, I've heard you on Marketplace over the years. So, And, and you're, you study this 
this point of like neuroscience and economics and just that's just fascinating so tell us about yourself paul i'm very confused as you can tell (laughs) the thing that confuses me most is humans Uh, i heard they're a fascinating species that's been my experience and most of my professional life has been uh, to try to develop knowledge and technologies that help us understand human behaviors, uh, in particular, human social behaviors. Uh, so you can diagnose whether I have some uh, deficiency in that area that led me to spend most of my life studying that. Hmm. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, my first book really spent, it was about 10 years I spent looking at the nature of good and evil from a neurologic perspective. I think it's the oldest question humans have had since there have been humans. Uh, and, and then the next book, you know, really looked at how do we build high performance organizations? So if we really understand human neuroscience, then why do we have so many um, organizations fail? Uh, so many smart people fail. I, I'm fascinated that for the last 30 years, 80% of Hollywood movies have lost money. Like, mm. How is that possible at this stage of human evolution that we don't know a good script production director from a bad one. And I have some some hypotheses on that. And then, yeah, immersion came out of all this work, as you said, funded by DARPA, funded by the U.S. intelligence community, to create technologies that would allow us to measure signals from the brain that would tell us if people valued an experience. If they value it, then they behave in a different way. Your brain responds in a very unique way. And I think we all want to have amazing experiences. I know, you know, I don't want to have a so-so partner. I don't want to have a, see a crappy movie, um, but there's a lot of that out there. So how do I know? And to me, the answer is measurement. But why not just ask people what they think of something? I mean, that's what we do. We, we, we do surveys, we do focus groups, postmortems. Was that good for you? <laughs> Sorry, I should have put that one in there. Uh, <laughs> really shouldn't have we're going to keep it um you know why why does isn't that sufficient paul isn't that enough so how's that working out (laughs) not so well yeah so again that's what hollywood does right they still hand out screeners little cards and pencils ask people do you like this what do you think so one of the classic examples of the movie uh, marley and me if you remember that movie with the dog and apparently all the screeners said, oh, don't let the dog die at the end. I mean, the whole point of that movie is the dog has to die. The humans have to take what that dog taught them and move on with their life. That's the, the emotional climax of the movie is a growth opportunity. And uh, so the, the science on this is fascinating. Uh, about 99% of your brain activity is unconscious. And I think we have this Freudian hangover in which we think, if I just probe in the right ways, I can make the unconscious conscious. But no, your unconscious emotional responses stay unconscious. I might ask you to rate them. It doesn't mean you're doing that with any accuracy. And indeed, when we look at those self-reported uh, responses, they very poorly predict real outcomes, individual mm-hmm. behaviors, um, uh, you know, market behaviors. If you intend to lose 10 pounds this year, Noah, uh, good for you. If you really lost 10 pounds, then we should talk, right? How did you do that? Oh, like, I got a story for you on that one. But like, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I lost 27 this year. Just, oh, you know, good for you. Right if we're in here. I know I just, I just went, uh, you know, narcissistic, but you know, we're going to talk, but wait, uh, anyway. We, yeah. We're going to get into my talk. Yeah. So I think yeah. liking is the stupidest question to ask people. Right. How much do you, how much do you like uh, this uh, movie compared to what? 
compared to my kids? I mean, compared <laughs> to my dog, for example, my kids talk back to me all the time. My dog's perfect. I love my dog, right? So I think we're asking the wrong thing. I think what we found neurologically is um, a bunch of signals in the brain that together say this experience is so valuable that it will begin to kick in neurologic resources so that I am committed, I am immersed in this experience. And when that happens, the state of immersion, the experience is enjoyable, it's memorable, and it provokes action. So, so this is definitely something interesting for our world here at, at NoPro and everything immersive, because I like to talk about how, you know, we're at the point where we go from like, you know, attention to engagement engagement to action like how deep do you go how much you know for sake of argument someone is immersed in something and you're looking at immersion uh, as as a kind of a measurable quality across kind of all aspects of human experience but i'm i'm wondering here you know how how do you get to this point where you can translate well, i guess bouncing around this is a classic no pro interview right now um what does this platform do? So if, if I'm someone who's logging into this platform, because you have a platform, what, what do people, what does it do? What do people see? What are they, what answers are they discovering uh, on what you've built? I'm going to answer that, but let's go back to the part where we just shared a brain for about 60 seconds. Yeah. So the, the components of immersion are those components that you just mentioned, although with one small change, the first component is attention. If you're asleep, this is not going to be a valuable experience to you. If you're looking out the window instead of at the stage, it's not going to be a great experience. So the first is attentional responses, which is driven by the brain's production of dopamine. The second is you call it engagement. We call it emotional resonance. You've mm. actually got to get in, uh, a signal from the brain that says, I care about this, right? This is so important to me that I'm going to expend energy to um, be fully present, to be part of this experience. And your brain is so metabolically costly to run that it really doesn't want to do that unless it, you can convince it to do it. And so that emotional resonance actually drives most of the variation second by second in immersion. And the way we discovered immersion with the DARPA, et cetera, funding was to give people experience, measure brain activity lots of different ways, and then seeing who responded in an observable, observable way to that experience versus those who didn't. So... We showed you a little video about kids with cancer and then took blood before and after and saw who took their 40 bucks. We paid them and donated some to a children's cancer charity. We um, showed you videos of uh, climate change and see how many people emailed their congressperson uh, about a bill. We did this over and over and over until we found a consistent set of signals that in combination says, this is important to me. This is so important that I want to devote my neural resources, my scarce real neural resources to this. And so what the platform does is it democratizes neuroscience by getting this out of the lab, by getting rid of those weirdo PhDs, and by getting rid of these very expensive machines we use in laboratory experiments. So it basically is an app that you download to your smartwatch and your phone. And we have written algorithms that let us infer the activity of the brain from the, the nerves in your neck called the cranial nerves that innervate your heart. So all we need is a good heart rate sensor. We don't care about heart rate, but uh, big surprise, the brain controls the heart. 
So if we work backwards and we find these um, very subtle changes in the rhythms of the heart, then we can identify what the brain's doing. And we've identified these factors that tell us that this is valuable second by second. And that value, again, is not zero one, it's variation in value. So you see which part of an experience are most valuable. Uh, so for example, for, uh, for branding, for some kind of call to action, like a purchase, you want that to be in a peak immersion moment so that you have the kind of tension in the brain that says that you actually want to take an action. So, so think of immersion as tension, just like we build tension into storytelling. I want to put tension in your brain. And then again, it, it may just be a pure entertainment experience, which that tension then dissipates as the story resolves, or it could be tension that leads you to take some kind of action. Just, just to zero in for a second here, because when, and, and, and we've, we've danced this dance a couple of times, you and I, uh, and, and I'm, I'm happy where we land. Uh, which is why we're here today. You develop this platform with with like you know the the help of the DARPA and all that sort of stuff. But you were doing blood draws and like complicated machinery, and now it all comes down to it's on the phone, it's on your watch, and there's this interpolation of uh, heart rate information. Um, it, it almost feels like can it be so easy, or is it just that the hard part's really hidden because that that finding that correlation between what, what the heart rate's doing and all of these, this, this detailed work that involved like probably EEG machines and everything else feels, I don't know, it, that does start to feel like magic. Yeah. I mean, I think it is the Arthur C. Clarke quote. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. So again, we got 20 years of published science. So it's all been replicated and confirmed uh, by other laboratories. Um, the, the value that the U.S. taxpayers contributed to this was the ability to measure around 150 signals in the brain simultaneously. So as you said, high-density EEG, um, and not only correlation, but causation. Uh, all these peripheral measures, so we measure activity from the brain, the peripheral nervous system, um, put catheters in people, measure changes Ooh. in neurochemicals, and then we can manipulate these systems pharmacologically. So we can actually take these systems and then uh, turn them on and show that the experience is more enjoyable, it's more memorable, it provokes action. So we actually know what these pathways are. So most of the stuff that your brain is doing now is keeping you upright, breathing and conscious and teeny little ribbons are responding to my voice, the information in my voice. And so finding those ribbons uh, that consistently activate across a range of experiences was really hard. But you're right, from the user's perspective, this looks like some magic app that produces data in real time, any place people are having cool experiences and can tell the event creator how good those experiences are compared to benchmarks, second by second, what, you know, what kills, what, when people check out, who loves it the most, right? You can begin to think about targeting I mean, there's so many interesting things that one can do with this and clients are doing with it. Um, one of the most interesting is not even in the uh, sort of immersive experience, uh, sort of entertainment space, but in the training and education, we have a bunch of clients that use this to optimize uh, learning new material. Hey, learning is hard. It takes a lot of resources. How about optimizing the content, the way you present the content, it's, it, how it's delivered, um, who delivers it? Um, you know, those are all really good questions. 
I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have you stick around for maybe just a couple minutes of overtime because there's some things I want to I want to dive in on uh, for the for those who want to check that part out. But I got one more question for you before breaking that way, which is um, for someone who's in the creative field, uh, particularly someone who's making something that is experiential. So you know, not just folks sitting watching a movie because I can I can see how Hollywood would want to know like, oh hey, is this cut working, right? Uh, what are the kinds of things that a creator can learn uh, if they were to um, play around with this system? What, what 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 questions could they maybe answer for themselves? Such a good question, Noah. Yeah, I think it gets us out of our own heads and into other people's heads, right? What I really want to know is not, I mean, I hope I like this because I'm creating it, but does it really turn on other people's brains so much so we really see immersion as workflow software so that people can create amazing immersive experiences. So at every stage of the production process, storyboards, voiceovers, um, overlaying music, uh, editing, use it everywhere. Use it every place you can, right? It's, it's subscription software. Uh, you know, why not test every stage of that? So if you've got it on your desktop, it's just a great way to ensure that what you're making doesn't just depend on the creator having a great day. Paul, I'm, I've got a bajillion more questions for you, and I think at some point we will, I will, <laughs> I will hurl them at you at high speed. But right now, um, I just want to thank you for for coming on the show. And uh, when if people want to, you know, check out uh, um, immersion, where would they go? They can go to get immersion. Dot com immersion with an I. Paul J. Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a ball, Noah. Once again, I want to thank Paul for being a guest on the show. I want to thank Fiona. I want to thank Zach and Tara. I want to thank uh, Kevin. And I want to, of course, thank Catherine for helping us get this all together. Uh, more in the credits in a moment. Uh, do share this. It really helps. Uh, it really, really helps when people share it. Uh, it really, really helps when people make that uh, iTunes review. Uh, it helps when you share the review rundown, all that stuff. Uh, this really still is a movement that's based on word of mouth, and we are a, an amplification system, but nothing works quite like the people's microphone, and uh, that means sharing stuff online. Uh, or maybe maybe you hate everything we do, and that's why you don't share it, in which case, we'll stop. We'll stop, sure. Uh, <laughs> help. All right, um, that's the desperate line. It's warm in here and I don't have air conditioning. Yeah, that's right. I live in Los Angeles without air conditioning. Welcome to the end of the show. Welcome to the part where I take the mask off for a moment, keep you here behind the scenes. Uh, we've got some more announcements coming up. Um, they were supposed to go this week. They haven't gone this week because I don't have some assets in yet. Uh, for next stage, uh, we'll be doing more speaker announcements, more plans, uh, all of that stuff coming together. And yes, we'll be talking about what the three-day ticket prices are going to be, uh, aiming to get them as close as we could to the three-day ticket prices for 2020. Just have to see how reasonable that is. So lots of moving parts. Uh, and for those who don't know what the prices were in 2020, it was like about $600 for the three days. So it was roughly $200 a day. Um, 
if we'd had some big corporate sponsor, we could have uh, lowered that price a lot. We didn't. So there you go. Uh, but I will say this much. Uh, if we can pull off what we want to pull off in January, if, if the gods are willing, uh, oh, it's going to be our best thing ever. Yet, right? I don't want to say it's going to be our best thing ever because, you know, we got to keep on topping ourselves, but it's going to be pretty good. I'm really excited. Oh, the things I can't tell you yet. Uh, okay, so there is a lot going on. We're still in that weird time because some things are running at full steam and some things have pulled back and Meow Wolf Denver is about to open and... It's like in, in super preview mode right now, and uh, all of the Halloween stuff in Los Angeles is running full bore. You know, uh, Halloween Horror Nights opened, uh, for, at least for the press preview was last night. I didn't go. Um, Knott's press preview is next week. I'm going. I'm very excited. Uh, there's outdoor stuff happening. There's, of course, uh, Delusion and Ghostlight here in L.A., uh, there's, there's stuff on the East coast, which doesn't come straight to mind because of course I am a narcissistic Los Angelino. Um, yeah. Uh, um, uh, and, and the, we're in this cycle with, uh, le pandemic that is, uh, just weird. And so it's also hard to tell what we should and shouldn't be going to. So with all that in mind, um, do your best to stay safe, uh, you know, make the choices that protect you and others, right? We're responsible members of the community. Uh, and we all know that the longer these, uh, lockdowns and pseudo lockdowns go, the harder it is for everyone to, uh, get on with their lives and make the work they want to make and try and make the world a better place, uh, to just be in. Okay, enough of that for me for now. I'm a broken record. We all know it. Um, next week on the show, that's a very good question. Uh, you want to know what's going on? Well, I can tell you this much. Uh, if all goes the way it should, we're going to have a special episode, a special interview drop midweek next week. Uh, can't tell you what it is yet because there are embargoes, but it's going to be a fun one. And then uh, we've got a few other things lined up. Um I will tell you, I had a great conversation with uh, Julia Ritter, the author of Tandem Dances, and that's going to be on the show next week for absolute certainty. And um, maybe a few other things as well. Some things aren't in the can yet. And there's, it's, we're, we're headed into like, you know, a very busy season and um, there's, there's going to be a lot of fun. Our next, our next like on the ground produced piece probably won't come around till November, uh, and part of that's because I'm taking my traditional week off in October that I have to interrupt for Facebook Connect, uh, which I'm really excited about interrupting my vacation for that. I'm just so excited. So very excited. All right. Uh, this is the most informal one of these has been in a while. So uh, for old school listeners, congratulations. Uh, you got the unvarnished me for once. Do you, do you hate it when I read all the parts in the center or do you like it better because this goes quicker? Let me know. Uh, you could always reach out to us. Uh, I was going to give you my own email, but, uh, <laughs> just reach out to us at no presenting. We'll find a way. Um, my inbox is a nightmare. So I'm like, don't do that right now. All right, let's do the credits. Let's do the credit, shall we? This is staining backers of No Persinium, the people who make this really possible. Seriously, without these people, I couldn't pay my rent. They are Ari Hurston, Brittany, 
Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Emily Gillette, Jay Bushman, David Basuk, Lonnie Hanson, Paul Farnell, Mark Baltazar, Samuel Mustry, Sidney Guillory, and Jan Budman. I don't know what I do to deserve you. The associate producer of No Persinium, the podcast, is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. The one and only Catherine Yu is the executive editor here at No Pro. What does that mean? That means we have we. <laughs> I was gonna say, that means we have to talk to each other all day. I was trying to say it. That means she has to listen to my text messages all day long. Um, that's what that means. Um, and it also means that the site would not work without her. So uh, very scared of the day that Catherine gets snatched up by some giant corporation. Okay. Uh, good luck. Good luck, Catherine. Um, I hope, I hope, uh, I hope the semester is going well. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm so scared of when I lose you. The No Pro Podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced, mixed, butchered during this section uh, by yours truly, Noah Nelson, who apparently can no longer speak the English language. So I'm going to sign off in my native Sherwook. (laughs) 